direct your attention to the Word of God this morning. We are back in our series of preaching through the book of Hebrews. We're in Hebrews chapter 4. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward, since he himself is beset with weaknesses. Because of this, he is obliged to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. No one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And as he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. I want us to look at this morning out of this passage, which is deep and rich and provides a tremendous amount of detail, a lot of which is developed in other places of the book of Hebrews. In fact, that passage there in verses 5, 6, and 7, or 5 and 6, where it quotes Psalm 2, you are my son, this day I have begotten you, and also Psalm 110, where you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Those two passages have already appeared in chapter 2, and we've dealt with what that has to do with. One is the deity of Christ, and the other is the nature of his mediatorial work as a high priest. The thing about the Messiah of Israel, the Savior of the world, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, in his coming, he came to convey to us and to bring to us salvation, and he does it through his work. His person is he is God, he is man. His work is that he saves. And he saves us through the work of the performance of the duties of three classic Old Testament offices, prophet, priest, and king. And we're looking at the important thing here. The very first words of this epistle talks about Christ as prophet, as the word of God, the one that brings the word of God to us. But the rest of the epistle primarily is concerned about his mediatorial work as priest, high priest, a unique kind of priest. That is a priest who is also a king. And we've seen the kingship of Christ forever. This is both a coronation psalm and it is an anointing psalm. 
and an ordaining psalm, an appointing psalm that we see that's been quoted. So there's a lot of richness here that, that will appear other places. We've already looked a little bit at that first part of the passage where it says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in every respect tempted as we are yet without sin. We looked at that verse in conjunction with an earlier passage in Hebrews where the writer is trying to exhort us and encourage us to know that Jesus is a human being like we are so that he knows what it's like to live in our circumstance, to live a human life. And that, of course, is the whole thrust of the incarnation. And that's what we see there in that verse 7 that I want us to look at today. In the days of his flesh, never underestimate the importance of God becoming human. Our understanding of God's salvation work is that God comes to us. We do not come to Him. We do not climb Jacob's ladder and reach heaven. Instead, God came down the ladder. He condescended. He came to us. This was Jesus' mission, was to come to seek and to save the lost. And that's who we are as a race, as a species, humanity. We're lost. We lost it all in our father and our mother, Adam and Eve. And we've come now to the place where we are subjects of salvation. We're in dire need of the work of God in our life. And the plan and the purpose, the program and the performance of what the Lord does for us is so beautifully unfolded in his work of his offices, especially the office of, of priest, as we see before us. Jesus came in the days of his flesh. We've come through the Advent season where we have four or five sermons that pretty much center upon the incarnation. Understanding the little babe in the manger is God in the flesh. And he is now, as John says in his gospel, he's tabernacling among us. He's pitching his tent among us. He's living with us. His feet are walking in the same dust we walk in. His nostrils are breathing the same air we breathe. He's drinking the water. He's eating the food. He's living the life. And that's what Jesus did. Jesus was in his humanity and in his earthly life, in the days of his flesh, he was right with the people. Not only was he born in a humble circumstance, as we all know, and pretty well understand this biblical revelation of the early life of Christ, but the very place in which he was born, the very family into which he was born, the very uh, region of the country, uh, all signal to us that God was determined to come to right into the dust of humanity and live there. And Jesus did, and, and everything about his life that was observed by those round about him was he was thoroughly human. Some of the things they said about Christ is quite uh, ugly. One of the things they notice is, is this not the carpenter's son? His mother was supposed to be a virgin, but we, we know that don't happen. He's, he's the carpenter's son. So he lived a life of, of shame of humiliation. Because even though we know the truth, that he was in fact 
born of a virgin womb, conceived by the very Spirit of God. Yet, he was pretty much human in every way. And so it was unthinkable that something that the incarnation would have happened. Jesus was a person. Even his lifestyle, not just his person, but his lifestyle was impugned. Behold, a gluttonous man and a wine-bibber. That's not a very complimentary thing to say. A gluttonous man and a wine-bibber. We've inferred from that, and I think rightly so, that Jesus was happy going to weddings like at Cana and parties. Uh, several of Jesus' uh, incidents in his life and several instances in the stories that Jesus tells have to do with someone throwing a banquet and having a party and a festival of some sort and people enjoying themselves there and, and all of the things that happen socially at those events. Jesus apparently not only attended, but he relished it. And then they looked at Jesus in his humanity and they said, he's a friend of sinners, tax collectors, prostitutes. Look at the company he keeps. Look how comfortable he is dining and, and having a good time of food and wine and fellowship in the home of Zacchaeus and Levi and other vile tax collectors. Look at how he's comfortable around prostitutes and sinners, open, flagrant sinners, famous sinners. Jesus didn't back away from us. He didn't move back. He did not maintain the aura and the aloofness of a holy man even though he was perfectly righteous and holy and without sin in any part he nevertheless was a man that was a friend of sinners what was a criticism of Jesus has become the sweetest story we can tell Jesus is a friend of sinners that's who he loves that's who he cares for. That's who he's closest to. That's who he has affection for. There's an interesting passage here when he's just speaking of the Old Testament high priest. It says, it says that the high priest is chosen from among men. He comes out of, the, out of the population. He's not someone that comes floating in on a cloud, riding in on a chariot. But he's someone that's right there among the people. And that's the true of the priest in the Old Testament. And they're appointed to act on behalf of men. They have a substitutionary, they have a vicarious role that they will do on behalf of men. They will work in men's place and on men's behalf in relation to God. Priests deal with holy things. Here's God being dealt with by a man among the people. And it says they offer sacrifices and gifts for sin. The priest had two primary duties. They did a lot of things in ancient Israel, but two primary duties. That was to offer sacrifices of all sorts, thank offerings and peace offerings and sin offerings, burn offerings of all, all whole sacrificial system. But then they offered prayers, intercessions. They prayed for the people. They, they advocated and pleaded for the people on behalf of the people before God. But look at this. He says the thing about the, the priest is he can deal gently with ignorant 
and the wayward. Now, the, the human high priest, Aaron and his sons, since he himself is beset with weakness, they understand it because they themselves have this residual of moral weakness in their souls coming from their inherited depravity and then exacerbated by their own sinful thoughts, words, and deeds. But not so with Jesus. Jesus was tempted in all points like as we are and suffered the agony of that temptation, but he was without sin. But notice that phrase, he can deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward. Can you imagine for a moment Jesus in a conversation with somebody in one of these dinners that they had, these dinner parties where Jesus attended there in Galilee, later in Judea? Or maybe at a really wonderful, friendly environment at the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, someplace like that, and sitting there and listening to their opinions about God and about salvation and about Israel and about the hope of Israel and about Caesar and politics and who knows what else that might be discussed. Jesus sitting there lovingly, quietly, understandably, enduring the ignorance of that conversation. Maybe offering a corrective word here, an instructive word there, an encouraging word there, maybe a little rebuke here. There they were, just the ignorant. And what's worse, the wayward. Sitting there listening to a man go on and on about his self-righteousness, working his way to the head of the table when Jesus knew good and well what he did in his taxes, what he did in his personal life, and what he did to his employees, and how he treated his family. Wayward, and Jesus is just sympathetically, lovingly hearing him out, listening to him. See, Jesus came to us where we are, and that's who he is. That's what he did. He, he didn't shy away from us. He was not repulsed by our opinions. He was not sent away by our waywardness. Our sins were not something that stood between us because he as a priest was going to remove those sins, move those sins as far as the east is from the west, cast them into the deepest sea and put them in the sea of forgetfulness and remember them no more. He was going to do that. And he was going to do it by just being right in the middle of his people. God with us, Emmanuel. He was going to dwell in the midst of his people. And he was going to heal their diseases. And he was going to atone for their sins and forgive and pardon their sins. Jesus was going to do the work that was necessary to restore them to the full humanity of himself. He was going to remove all of that defect that would now enable the Spirit of God to turn and make that person into the image of Christ. Jesus was going to take care of that business. And that's what He was doing in the days of His flesh. He was mingling amongst us 
He was hearing the saddest stories. He was seeing the most repulsive acts and deeds. He was enduring the worst that mankind had to offer all the way up through his lifetime, up through his temptation in the wilderness, and up to the last days of his life on earth. And that's what this particular passage describes. He said, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications. Can you imagine Jesus praying for these people? He had had fellowship with them. And then when he went out, he prayed for them. We have an example of that happening on one occasion with Peter. At the Last Supper, Jesus is having a communion with Peter. But then he says, I have prayed for you because the devil is going to sift you. And I've prayed for you. That you will be restored. And when you're restored, you'll restore your brothers. Even during his life, Jesus was performing this intercessory prayer ministry that the priest performed. Now in the ancient ritual, the priest would put a particular perfume upon the hot burning fire and a fragrant smoke would go up, an incense offering, and it would symbolize the prayers. And Jesus was doing that. He was putting the incense, the sweet-smelling savor, upon the fire of God's judgment that was making the intercessory prayer go up on behalf of sinners. You may not realize it. That's why I guess the Lord sent me here today to tell you. <laughs> I have a hard time realizing it myself. But Jesus is praying for each of you. This passage is going to, this book's going to tell us here in a few chapters that Jesus lives forever. One of his features of his eternal life, his resurrection life, is that he ever lives to make intercession for us. He is in heaven advocating our case. And I think this is how he does it. I, I, he doesn't point to us and say, well, Lord, you know they're just human. They're going to do that. They're sinners. Just, just ignore it. Forget about it. I don't, think that's his, I don't think that's his case. When he advocates for us, I don't think he makes that case. I don't think he makes the case, well, look at that person. They're pretty good overall. That, that person's an elder at PCPC. You know, that person is a deacon at First Baptist Church. You know, this person is a Sunday school teacher. This wonderful lady here has been teaching in the nursery for 45 years. That ought to suffice and say something, shouldn't it, Father? No, as wonderful as that is and great ministry and works, that's not the basis of his, of his case. His case, I believe, in every, every instance on our behalf is to point to his suffering, his finished work. It's all what he did for us. And I think the reference here in this particular passage is to the prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. Did Jesus have an emotional problem? Or was he a man acquainted with real grief? Did he really know how serious our sins are? And it crushed him to think of what our punishment would be 
if we bore it ourselves. And time after time, His willingness to bear our sins in His body on the tree was tested most notably at Gethsemane. You remember how Mark says that Jesus said to Peter, said, my, my heart is sorrowful unto death. That, that's a deep sorrow. That's a deep grief. And then he asked Peter to pray with him for a while and Peter and the other disciples just couldn't hold up to it. They had too much wine. They were unaware of the cup that he was going to drink. They were just really, about like us, just completely out to lunch, clueless in every way. Didn't really understand and appreciate the gravity of the work that Jesus was doing on their behalf that very night. They were happy to indulge the flesh and get a good nap in the cool of the garden and in the comfort Meanwhile, Jesus is in deep agony, taking on Himself their sin, their ignorance, their waywardness, their incapacity. He was assuming it. And with loud cries and tears. You remember what the text says in, in Mark again? It says, the Lord went a little further. Oh, if I was a preacher, I'd preach right there about how the Lord goes further, you know. There's grace and then there's more grace. There's tolerance and there's forbearance and then there's more forbearance. There's forgiveness and there's more forgiveness, but I won't do that. Jesus went a little further and He says He cast Himself upon the ground. What, what is the physical posture of that? Abject despair. Totally casting Himself upon the ground. This is Gethsemane. This is before the trial. This is before the beating. This is before the scourging. This is before the spitting. This is before the mocking. This is before the crown of thorns. This is before the crucifixion. This is before the nails. This is before the spear. All that physical suffering is right around the corner. Going to come up in a few hours. But here in the garden of Gethsemane, he's praying with cries and tears to Him who was able to save Him from death. He was calling out to the Lord. And this language, by the way, and all through the New Testament, is crafted around the, the 22nd Psalm. Psalm 22, we know Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. Psalm 22 is, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That Psalm is the Psalm that tells us the story of the crucifixion in quite a bit of detail. And that's what we have here, that the Lord is crying out to the Father, says, although he was a son, although a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Let me highlight one word and I'm done. He learned obedience from what he suffered. Can you imagine Jesus having to learn something? In his humanity, he did. It was just like us. He had to learn. And he learned through the suffering. Not the suffering of his own sin and the consequences of it, but the Suffering among and with sinners. Their consequence. Their circumstance. And then eventually, of course, bearing their sins. And being made perfect or complete. 
through his suffering. He became the source of eternal salvation. The author of salvation is in the old authorized version. and It means the one who, who brings it, who, who creates salvation, who authorizes it and authors it. He became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey Him. He learned obedience through suffering. And now He saves all those who politely acknowledge He exists. You know, those that make a profession of faith. You no. Know, those that are faithful members of churches and do not necessarily. The people he authors salvation for is people that go through the same thing he goes through. As he goes through it on their behalf, they are baptized with a baptism of suffering. And it's to those who obey him. Should Jesus obey the Father all the way to the cross? Must Jesus bear the cross alone and all the world go free? No. There's a cross for everyone. And there's a cross for me. He's the author of our salvation. When and if and as we obey Him. Learn of me. Take my yoke upon you. Obedience. That's what Jesus was doing in the days of his flesh. He was suffering through the same thing we suffered through in the days of our flesh. But he had the answer to our greatest need.